Fortitude, located somewhere in Hollywood. Uh, it's also called the Fortress of Proopitude, but as you know here, we never say anything correctly twice when it can get a laugh once, and then never again. Um, no, we're not uh, live this week. We're in the Porpoise. I'm here with uh, Jennifer and Ryan, sitting in the Porpoise, surrounded by the cement walls and the, the fortifications that we built up over time here. The bulwarks and the... Uh, um, hedgerows and the and the picket fence we've made out of sharpened skeins uh, that we've put broken glass with glue all around to make sure that we're protected at all times from the outside world uh, no i'm not that paranoid and welcome back to the show if you're listening in your blanket for it hello if you're listening out there on the road this is an awesome time to open a beer and balance it between your legs and drink it out of a straw while the highway patrol chases you down the road as quickly as possible if you're at home this is a groovy time to grind up some children's aspen and lay rails out for everyone in the entire family I'm joking, of course. Don't take drugs unless you have them. Um, once again, we convene and join hearts and hands and minds. And uh, in this post-apocalyptic world that we appear to be living in this week, I refuse to knuckle under and I refuse to succumb. Jennifer and I were sitting around the old crib last night, having watched a couple of days worth of horror on the news. And some douche bomb took it upon himself to set off a shitload of firecrackers outside our house, which made the atmosphere somewhat electric, I should say. Somewhere between Chinese New Year's and the Boxer Rebellion, and uh, we all reached for our firearms, which, as you know, we keep here. I have a super soaker. Jennifer has a Nerf pop gun, and we took to the arms, ran out into the street, and waved our... No, never run out into the street in L.A. when you hear popping noises. That's my first rule. Um, they were just firecrackers because, horribly, firecrackers go boom and pistols go crack. And uh, that's something you learn in Los Angeles. And, uh, and helicopters fly over immediately afterward, and then you know the cops are on their job. Which they were, and we heard police radios crackling and the cops fly, flying all over. Um, I wonder, on a night uh, after there's been so much violence in America, might the douchewads of the world um, keep it to themselves? Uh, if you've got firecrackers to set off, I've got an idea. Why don't you go into your bathroom, put it in your mouth, and light it, okay? Instead of freaking out everyone who's trying to just get to fucking sleep. I only have a certain amount of Valium. That's all I'm saying. And if I'm going to get my proop snap and, and uh, dr drift off to proops Castilian land, where there's nothing but Spanish castles floating in the air, surrounded by purple dragons, and an enormous moat made out of gazpacho, I'm going to have to have your help on this. So please don't panic me before I'm about to go to bed and scare everyone in the family here. Um, Trevor, the youngest of the goats, was frightened to death, and we had to pet him for the longest time before he'd go down. And uh, I don't know if you've ever raised goats before, but you should. Um, speaking of which, this show is uh, coming out on the Monday. Uh, it'll have been one of the great weeks in American history. Um, of course, England continues its slide into insignificance uh, as Wales... Failed uh, to make the finals of the... By the time you hear this, either France or Portugal will have won the Euro Cup, which I know is the most important thing in your life. That's why I'm speaking to you directly, the listener, as Greg Proops, the broadcaster, the Proopcaster right here. Um, I'm going to guess it's France, but that's only because they always win at home. Jennifer likes France. Although, during the last World Cup, she rooted for Portugal, and I said, why? And she went, because the guys are hot. And I'm like, really? We have an American team out there playing their heart out. And she's like, what's his name? Bradley looks like a sperm that just kept growing. He's so ugly. And I'm like, what about Portugal? And she's like, look at their thighs. And I was like, all right, I can't watch this with you. And then I did anyway from another room and I touched myself. Here's the point. Um, we have a lot of gigs coming up. Uh, we're, we've moved our week at the punchline. I know this confuses people. I'm sorry. Um, as, my, um, as my personal appearance manager told me here in L.A. a couple of weeks ago, Proops, it's a chess game. Um, so... <laughs> 
I, I'd never really considered comedy that way before. I always thought of it more like Stratego, where you'd hide the bomb behind the flags and you'd have to capture them. And my favorite character in Stratego, if you remember it at all, was the spy, because there was generals and there was uh, captains and there was uh, field marshals, whatnot. But there was one character that wore a cloak and a top hat, as if he was carrying a dagger. Uh, and uh, he was my favorite. They had very little power, the spies. They could only blow up bombs, I think. But they were, it was a fun character. I love Stratego. When, when did the Napoleonic Wars enter children's consciousness as a board game? You could never have that now. Now it would be a live action um, video game, right? And there'd be Napoleon. You'd have to fix a bayonet and then go kill a big Prussian or whatever. And then, oh, my God, Marshal Grouchy's too late and whatever. As our late great neighbor here once asked me, Greg, are you familiar with the Battle of Austerlitz? I'm not kidding. This is the kind of conversations we used to have. I believe I've told you about him. We set off a cannon once in the backyard. He had a cannon. Have I told this on the show? I think I have. We, it was 4th of July. Because it's 4th of July, it's time to tell the story again. But last week's show was the 4th of July show. Yeah, this is the Bastille Day show. So this is how it goes. Herman lived next door to me, right? And I would go over. And he came over and he, the phone rang. And he goes, uh, I'm setting off a cannon. Do you want to come over? And I went, I, I do. And I said to Jennifer, I'm going to go over to Herman's. We're setting off a cannon. And she's like, have fun. So I go over and uh, he gave me some Captain Morgan spice rum. Then he took me out in the backyard and he had a cannon on blocks. And I mean, you know, not like, you know, it wasn't like we were laying siege to Vicksburg or whatever. There wasn't that big of a cannon. You know, this wasn't World War. It wasn't a Krups. You know, we... We, we weren't firing on Moscow, you know, this was, this isn't Stalingrad, this one, these weren't, it wasn't a 75 millimeter on two wheels, right, this wasn't Patton's third army, but he did have a cannon, and it had about, I would say, uh, a half inch, three quarter inch bore, right, big bore, and uh, then you, you uh, it was an old timey, old timey cannon, and he didn't have it on wheels, he had it on a block, right, so it had two straps over it, so, he hands me a tin of gunpowder and he goes, I've lost my funnel. You have to use your hand. So I poured a bunch of gunpowder in my hand and which I had to put down my weed because you don't weed and gunpowder don't mix. And uh, well, they do, but then they very quickly and it's a chemical reaction and then it's a sober. And then your face looks like Wiley Coyote after the thing blows up and you have to hold up a sign that says help or ouch. Uh, and so I fill up my hand with gunpowder and I pour it in the touch hole, right? Where you have to put the powder. And, uh, um, I don't know if you've ever put gunpowder in your hand before. It's India ink. It's, you might as well take ink and just pour it in your hand. It's as black as, as night. And it's completely turns, uh, it, the color rubs off, right? It, it gunpowder is insanely, uh, um, uh, dark and sticky and gets everywhere, all over everyone. That's why when you see movies when guys have had a shootout and they've got gunpowder on their faces or whatever, uh, th that's what. So I go, we're not shooting a cannonball, are we, Herman? And he's like, I'm not crazy. No. I'm like, mm, that remains to be seen. This, you have provided no evidence of this, of your sanity so far. So he goes, no, we shoot wadded up newspaper. And I'm like, well, where are we shooting it? And he goes, see those neighbors behind us? They built a two-story. I hate them. <laughs> so... I wad up a Los Angeles Times. I stuff it down the, the breach, right? I, and then he gives me the matches and goes, set it off on the touch hole, right? So I, I have poured a, 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 about a, a, a several tablespoons of gunpowder into the back of this cannon. And I put, I put the match down on the touch hole. And of course it fizzes, right? Cause there's gunpowder everywhere. It goes, and then kaboom, right? The powder goes off and this wad of flaming newspaper shoots like 30 feet 
into the backyard, which hasn't been watered, tended to. So we set it off a couple more times, right? Because we're guys. And mind you, he was probably 80 at the time. And I was, oh, I was only about 20. And uh, oh my God, my thighs. If you could have seen me then, with the way my hair uh, and the 4th of July breeze, if you could have just seen the crescent moon rising over me. Um, very attractive. And uh, Herman goes, you want to shoot it off again? I'm like, oh yeah. So we did a couple more. And then Lucille, his wife, came out and went, Hyman, he wants to go home. It's a holiday. Like that. Because that's how they talk to each other. They were from New York, but they had, and they'd lived in Los Angeles for maybe 50 years, and they had lost none of their New York accent. If you asked Lucille how something was, she would go, um, like, uh, oh, Lucille, you went to Vegas on the weekend. How was it? It was beautiful. Beautiful had 17 syllables. So that was my favorite Fourth of July. Uh, and uh, then another time he asked me if I was familiar with the Battle of Austerlitz, but I believe he just showed me a bunch of tin soldiers on that trip. Uh, and then he'd ask me about various comedians from time to time. Do you think they're funny or whatever? And I knew that whatever I answered, I was on very shaky ground. You had to trepidatious at best because uh, he uh, we have fruit vendors here in L.A. And uh, they're often Mexican and they, they work on the like sometimes now that's fruit juice. Like if you go to the corners, sometimes uh, in any corner in L.A., there's a guy pushing a cart and it's a fruit juice cart. And he, and he sells uh, coconut and pineapple, whatnot, orange juice, guava. Uh, and sometimes people just sell fruit on the corner, like papayas or st- flats of strawberries. Yes, we call them flats. That's my that's my produce tip to you today, in case you didn't know what a big box of strawberries was called. It's called a flat. And um, traditionally oranges, uh, although you don't see it quite as much lately as you did years ago here in L.A. when every corner had oranges on it. And a cat set up uh, on the corner and he was selling some fruit and whatnot. And I thought, well, you know, that's all right, because he's keeping an eye on the neighborhood. For one thing, if anything happens, this guy will have seen it because he's sitting there all day. And two, how much money can he really be making? I'm sure he's working for some evil fruiterer who's enslaved him, uh, which is often happens in Los Angeles. And um, of course, Herman, I, I, I call the police. And I'm like, first of all, the idea that the LAPD is going to respond to there's a guy selling fruit on the corner is like selling, saying, calling the NYPD and going, there's a guy selling falafel on the corner in a wagon. The possum. So did he call the police about the possum? So, yeah, he goes, I saw a possum last night, Greg. And I'm like, yes. And he went, I called the police. And I'm like, now that one, I'd love to have taken that call. Then a little kid across the street uh, um, was having his fifth or sixth birthday party, and they'd gotten the local fire department to bring a hook and ladder down. So they drive the hook and ladder up across the street from our crib, and they, the little kid's on top of it playing with the firemen, right? And, uh, you know, all the kids are on it, and they're goofing around, and the firemen are letting them, you know, honk the horn and, you know, touch the hoses and whatnot and put on the goggles and everything. And then that's it. You know, after 20 minutes, the kids get down, and Herman comes out and goes, I can't believe they're wasting the taxpayers' money. <laughs> we're like, it's a five-year-old's birthday. It was, if you were five in a fire, a real-life fire truck full of firemen, he was, the kid had never had so much fun. I called the cops. Like, what did the cops say? You know, they're not coming. Like, well, obviously they're not coming. They know all the firemen. Like, are you out of your... Yeah, he was law and order. He was law and order. And there's one of the strongest old people I've ever seen in my life. In his 80s, he'd be out in the yard digging. And um, he backed out of the driveway like the Jerry Seinfeld joke. I'm old and I'm coming out. No stopping. He just backed out of the driveway. And it didn't matter if you were coming at him, if there was a car coming 60 miles down the street. Then he put a mirror up. 
so that he could see the cars he hit as he came out of the driveway. And he did hit a few cars, if you recall. Very nice man. Well, maybe nice isn't the word, but he, his wife was lovely. One year we gave him a, a Christmas basket and, uh, you know, with, you know, nuts and, 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 and apples and wine and, you know, the usual fruit basket, Christmassy thing, candy. So they, all of a sudden there's a knock on our door, the doorbell rings, and we open the door and they're dressed up because they're going to some hospital function. And Lucille goes, thank you for the basket. And she kisses us. And Herman is standing in the driveway. And he goes, we're not your parents. (laughs) (laughs) Merry Christmas to you too, Herman. We don't celebrate Christmas with Jews. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. And we showed you kindness and therefore back the fuck off. I understand. We'll be at the punchline on this coming date, the 14th through the 16th in San Francisco, our beloved San Francisco. By the way, it's cold up there this July. And if you come, uh, it's supposed to be in the 50s and 40s at night. So bring a coat because that's where we stand outside and hang out. Uh, You're going to need a coat in San Francisco. If you're traveling from another city, uh, I should never tell you this because this is San Francisco's big secret. We never tell tourists this. Um, Herb Cain used to call it the full Cleveland. And that was when a tourist wore a white belt and white shoes. Well, that's very 70s. The full Cleveland now is tennis shoes, uh, shorts, and a fanny pack with a visor and no coat. Okay, so, oh, at 11 o'clock in the morning in July, it's delightful. Oh, it's 65 and a light breeze. And then at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, fantastic. It's 72 and the sun's coming out. Oh, I love San Francisco. Then at 325, the wind starts. And then at 345, the fog envelops the city. Then at 420, it's 50 degrees. And, you know, the difference between 70 and 55 is a lot, actually, when you're wearing shorts and a fanny pack. For our English friends, a bum bag. Fanny pack means something entirely different in England. And then, uh, so you, uh, uh, the sale of polar fleeces right around three 30 to five in the afternoon in San Francisco goes right through the roof. So you, you go to the show that night and there's 50 people all wearing San Francisco or golden get bridge, solar fleeces, polar fleeces so, or solar pieces. Um, or I, I went to Alcatraz and all I got was this polar fleece. Um, because no one tells tourists when they come from out of town because tourists are coming from Missouri or Mississippi or somewhere where it's ungodly hot and there's uh, mosquitoes the size of Piper Cub airplanes and, and they're not ready for the fact that it's just plain cold. Not like Arctic cold, but cold. Cold enough that you're like, fuck, I'm cold. Uh, so wear, wear a coat and wear long pants, please. And wear shoes. Don't wear flip-flops. Don't embarrass yourself. It's San Francisco. You can't walk up a hill in flip-flops. And if a cable car runs over you, it's over. Does that happen enough? Enough to make me want to keep you away from the city. Uh, if a tech douchebag runs over you with their hoverboard, you, you could <laughs> sustain terrible douchebag injuries when they drop their artisanal ice cream on you or they spill their artisanal coffee on you. Their, their uh, single-sourced uh, homemade chai it was at high levels. If they've just been to four barrels or whatever, and next thing you know, they're spilling foam all over you. That You really want shoes on in that case. Don't geefy the place. The 14th to the 16th. The 14th will be the podcast. That's the Thursday. Yes, it'll be at 8 o'clock. It's at the Punchline in San Francisco. Then we've switched the schedule around, you see, because we're going to Montreal to the Just for Laughs Festival, uh, which we've been to many times before, as you may recall, with Ryan Stiles. We did a show with John Oliver a couple years ago there. Uh, Got to work with lots of groovy people. In Montreal, I kissed Carl Reiner once. I kissed Dame Edna. uh, Told Jimmy Fallon to bring my car around. Good times. Um, Did he? Yes. 
We'll be there the 28th or the 31st. I can't remember which day the podcast is. Go to hahaha.com. I'm not kidding. Hahaha.com is uh, the Just for Laughs Festival. Or if you insist on being French-Canadian, Juste pour rire. Juste pour rire. Uh, and we'll be there the 28th or the 31st of July. Then we'll be in Tacoma. Oh, no, we're showing um, Clueless on the 19th. Uh, back here in Los Angeles at the Cine Family. Yes, Clueless. Um, but you're like, Clueless, that's on TV all the time. You haven't seen it in a theater. It's way better in the theater. How do you know? Because a group of people's in a theater that have agreed to all join us in one place, and they're having popcorn and Cokes and whatnot, and we laugh and laugh and laugh. And um, uh, seeing comedies in, a, in a, a movie theater that are legitimately funny comedies, I don't mean like, you know, Hangover 8, but I'm talking about like a real comedy. Clueless is 22 years old. So it's a classic film. And you think, but Greg, shouldn't you be showing really old movies? Mm, that is a really old movie. If you're 28, Clueless is an old movie. So good for you. Uh, join us there on the 19th. Cine Family. We're also going to be doing one uh, next month in August. I will, I'll let you know the date as soon as. And I think we're going to try to show Harold and Maude, but don't hold me to that. Uh, then the 25th through the 28th, 27th of um August will be in Tacoma at the Tacoma Comedy Club. Why are you going to Washington? Have you heard? Um, they sell legal weed in Washington. And Proofcast will be on the 25th in Tacoma. I have not played the Tacoma Comedy Club before. Why are you playing Tacoma, not Seattle? Because there's no clubs in Seattle, you guys. They're all gone. There's one in Bellevue. And if I have to make the choice between Tacoma and Bellevue, I'm going to Tacoma. Uh, why? What, weren't they nice to you in Bellevue? They were lovely to me in Bellevue. It's just that I get tired of Microsoft dominating my every thought. Then we're going to be in Spokane on the 28th. I think that's the Sunday. Uh, and that'll be a vodcast. We're going to be doing a vodcast in Spokane as well. So don't say I don't go to the Tri-Cities area. Don't call me from Yakima or Wenatchee and go, how come you're not coming to Wenatchee? Fuck you. Get your ass out to Spokane. Um, why do you call it Spokane when it's really Spokane? Why do you insist on calling me on shit? Uh, then... Why do I have November listed? Well, we might as well. Uh, in November 17th through 20th, we're going to be in Portland at the Helium. Get, book early to avoid disappointment. Uh, the, seven, the podcast will be on the 20th. That's the Sunday. Why are you doing it the last day there? Because that's how they like to do it in Portland. And by the way, there's a dispensary right around the corner from the Helium Comedy Club. There's a bike shop, a coffee shop, an Italian restaurant, and a dispensary. So it's an almost perfect configuration. Not a gun shop or a church to be seen. Then the 25th of uh, November, we'll be at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Uh, you know us. You love us. We do a th traditional Thanksgiving show there uh, with all the trimmings. Uh, there'll be pork sandwiches outside. There'll be booze inside. I thought you said a traditional Thanksgiving with all the trimmings. This is my traditional Thanksgiving. We uh, huff on the street outside, come in, get a pork sandwich, and then go to the bar. And then sit down and fucking be quiet. Then the first uh, through the third will be in Vancouver at the Yucks Comedy Club. The first will be... Uh, um, the podcast, that'll be December 1st. Uh, why are you going to Vancouver? Really? Uh, and then uh, uh, New Year's Eve, of course, again. Excuse me. Uh, our beloved punchline in San Francisco. Why are you telling all this now? Because I'm idling until we get to something. Here it is. Also, I'm on the road with the Who's Live Is It Anyway, guys. You can go to our site, which is called whoslivenyway.com, or you can go to gregproops.com and, and check in over there. All through September, October, and November, we'll be playing everywhere. Thousand Oaks, California. Uh, for those of you who live in the Los Angeles, uh, or as we call it here on the news, the Southland. Uh, that, where is Thousand Oaks? It's about an hour from here, northeast. It's northwest. Northwest. It's kind, is it near Tarzana? I've been there before, but it, the memory fades. Towards Simi Valley. 
towards Simi Valley. Well, good times. Uh, we'll be in T.O., as they call it down here. Uh, that's for our Canadian friends. I don't mean Toronto. T.O. here is Thousand Oaks, California. By the way, there are no oaks. Less, much less a thousand. Like Tarzana. When you go to Tarzana, no one swings on a vine there. It's so disappointing. Then September 10th, we'll be at the Fox Theater in Tucson, Arizona. September 11th at the Akita Theater in Mesa, Arizona. Where's Mesa, Arizona, Greg? I'm so glad you asked. It's adjacent to Phoenix, right next to Tempe. So if you live in the Phoenix, Tempe, if you live in what they call the Valley of the Sun, or within the uh, sound of my voice in the Salt River Valley Irrigation Project, then you'll be able to come out there. Even if you live in Surprise, Peoria, or Goodyear, or Litchfield Park. You can drive out and see us in Mesa. Uh, my Uncle Ray used to have a, a TV shop in Mesa called Ray D.O. Television. And it was because his name was Ray and his partner was D. And it was spelled out R-A-Y hyphen D-E-E hyphen O Ray D.O. So he used to let me go into the shop, right? Because my Aunt Marge lived next door. And... uh uh, and I would fuck around in the TVs. Like there was all these old TVs and these are TVs that had tubes. So you could pull the tubes out and these are big fucking tubes, right? These are fifties and sixties TVs and everything was covered with dust in the shop. And I used to say to him, do you ever work on anything? And he'd be like, Oh yeah, you know, I'll get to that. And like he just, uh, my uncle Ray might've been the lowest key individual that ever lived in the history of mankind. He had the ambition of a grapefruit. Which, by the way, he grew in his backyard in great abundance, an enormous grapefruit tree, which was fantastic. So we would eat the grapefruits. Uh, Arizona, fantastic for growing citrus. And uh, there was so I would go and play in the TV shop. And then me and my cousin Donnie would uh, uh, go to there was a super slide that was next door. Uh, just down the block, a couple blocks. Um, and super slides were these. Uh, this is before uh, 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 water parks and all that weird stuff they have now that they take kids to where, you know, they make you go through a tube and Napoleon fights you like in Bill and Ted or whatever. Uh, these were just a slide. So it was just basically a fiberglass slide that was several stories tall. You walked on a staircase to the top of it. <clears throat> At the bottom of it, um, you gave a girl a dime who was sitting at a table and she gave you a remnant of carpet. I'm not kidding. I know it sounds like I'm talking about the depression here. And we were like, my dad used to say, we'd go to Steeplechase Park for a nickel and there'd be a prostitute and we'd have popcorn. And I'm like, dad, please. I don't want to hear about Brooklyn in the 30s. So my, <laughs> this is in the 60s and 70s in Mesa, Arizona. There was a super slide, right? On, I think it was Casa Ground Road. And we'd, uh, we, you'd pay the girl a dime and she'd give you a carpet remnant. You'd walk to the top of this like three stories up a, a staircase, which you didn't carry your little... And by the way, no one drank water from a bottle then. If you drank water, it was from a water fountain, which was not on the premises. There was, however, soda pop stand. So you drank orangeade, limeade, Dr. Pepper, right? Uh, Byerly's orangeade or dad's root beer, this kind of stuff. We never, I don't remember ever being given water. And let, like water was like the last resort. Water was like, oh, we have to have water, barf. It was always soda pop. They didn't have ice tea in a can. We hadn't invented that yet. The technology to put ice tea in a can had not yet. We were still using pop tops that you pulled off and threw on the ground so that you could step on them later in your flip-flops and die and get tetanus and that dogs could eat them and choke to death. And then, then came pulling the pop top off and sticking it right back in the can. But then, of course, sometimes the fucker would twist around and, and make its way back out and you'd swallow that fucker. We were also given pudding cups and pudding cups had a serrated metal edge and you'd pull the top off and then you'd lick the pudding off and then your tongue would be slashed in two. These were given to children, by the way. And parents would smoke and be next to you. My sister used to sit with her, her cozy 
uh, around her fresca, right? They, to keep the fresca extra cold and smoke B&H longs. And watch, you know, they, all the women would come over and they'd hang out and watch TV and shit. Anyway, we'd go down on the thing. You'd get on the shred of Remnant uh, and you'd go to the top of the slide and there was no supervision. There was like a 14-year-old at the top. Like, like, do what you like. I don't care. I hate my life. I have to stand up here in the fucking 100. And believe me, in Mesa, Arizona in the summertime, it's 110 degrees um, heat and watch you kids. And like, ostensibly, that was the safety measure. That's that no one, really the safety measure was that no one fell off the crappy platform that had some cyclone fence around it. Cause you could so fall the other way off the slide. Never mind sliding on hot 110 degree fiberglass in your shorts with no shoes on. We were children. So you get on the carpet, you put your feet on the carpet and just fucking shoot down and we'd race each other. Then if you were super bold, stomach first, right? On your stomach, face first. So that should your face hit the fiberglass, it could be ripped off like a chimp. (laughs) And you'd end up at the bottom like abrasions. We would do that all day long. Oh my God. But it was funner at night. They stayed open at night and they had a couple of crappy uh, fucking Klieg lights that they'd set up. So there was intermittent light. So you're kind of in the light, out of the light, in the light, out of the light, like the shining. Uh, that was a very death-defying uh, thing that we used to do in Mesa, Arizona. So we'll be there the 11th. Uh, and of course, the f- slide won't be there anymore. I'm sure it's... Uh, now there's like, you know, a TGI Fridays and an Applebee's and some fake, you know, Chipotle or whatever. Uh, September 15th, East Lansing, Michigan. That's the capital of that fine state. Um, and uh, uh, I'll let it go at that. Then we'll be at the Pops Theater in Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin. The Pops Theater... Awesome backstage. You're not going, but I can tell you that backstage, they have a record player, an entire collection of albums. And the last time we played there years ago, I remember we got high and listened to Purple Rain and the turntable was slightly slow. So it wasn't 33 and a third. It was probably like 32. So it was like, dearly beloved. <laughs> we are gathered here to get through this thing called life. Like it was slightly off, but they let us do anything and it was really good fun. So I'm looking forward to playing the Paps Theater. Uh, then we'll be at the Elsinore Theater. Yes, that's right. Where Hamlet lives uh, in Salem, Oregon. That's September 22nd. September 23rd at the Holt Center in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, Eugene, probably the hippest uh, city, if there is such a thing, uh, outside of Portland. Uh, Salem, slightly more conservative. State capital and all that. Uh, everyone works for the government. Uh, although one of the great... Oh, no, that's Olympia, Washington. I get state capitals confused. I'm thinking of the Spar Coffee Shop. Oh, the spar. Eugene, on the other hand, has an awesome coffee shop that I'm not revealing the name of, but if you should go there, find it. Salmon and Eggs. September 24th, uh, the Newmark Theater in Portland, which we played a zillion times. Great fun in Portland. Uh, And then September 30th, we'll be at Pikes Peak Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado. October 1st at the Paramount Theater in Danvier in Colorado. Notice we're in Oregon and Colorado again. Hmm. And I had nothing to do with these bookings, by the way. Uh, then we'll be at the Paramount Theater. Oh, I said that in Denver on October 1st. Uh, then October 7th, the Mountain Winery in Saratoga. Uh, remember the Mountain Winery? Beautiful amphitheater in Saratoga. October's a great time of year in the South Bay. If you've never been to the South Bay of San Francisco, September, October, uh, I know it's horribly racist, but we used to call it Indian summer. I don't know why the Indians scheduled their summer in the autumn and why white people had their summer in July, but obviously white people are idiots because they freeze to death in July and the Indians had it nice in September and October. 
uh, uh, autumn in uh, the Bay Area is the best weather of the year, um, generally. And so that'll be a nighttime gig at the Mountain Winery in Saratoga. Yes, there's wine there. Yes, it's an outdoor amphitheater. It's really, really pretty. I haven't been there in ages. October 9th, uh, the Norris Theater in San Francisco. I've been asked to promote this one extra special hard. We need to get our San Francisco friends out. I know I'm playing there in July. I know I'm playing there in New Year's. But this is with Ryan Stiles, Jeff Davis, Joel Murray. That's right. Joel Murray from God Bless America. Bob Durkatch, who was musical director of Second City Toronto for 25 years. It's all of us throwing down hard, doing the improv. Where's Colin? Fuck you. That's where Colin is. I did two weeks in the West End with Colin. What do you want from my life? I had him inside me every night. How many times can I have that Canadian all over me? He has his own act with Brad. Uh, So come and see us in San Francisco. I've not played um, the Norse Theater, uh, but it, it sounds very good. Uh, and that's on October 8th. Then October 15th will be in Cree. Um, that's the River Cree Casino in Edmonton, Alberta. To be honest, it's not in Edmonton, Alberta. It's outside of Edmonton. Let's be very honest. It's in Enoch. There. I know that cleared it up for a lot of you. <laughs> However, very fascinating area because the Cree Nation is there. And uh, as you know, they, they spread out all over Alberta and uh, no, the northern part of America. And um, and Alberta is a beautiful state. Uh out in back of the casino, there'll be enormous uh, fields of what's that yellow flower? Uh, safflower? Uh, what's the one with the other yellow that they grow up there that's like just rolling fields of it? It's really astounding. Beautiful. And nothing's as big as the sky in Canada. You look up and you're like, oh my God. You, you, you feel like it's a blanket weighing down on you sometimes. First, it's a giant blue blanket. Then it's a, a cloudy blanket. Then if, the, if there's any kind of storm or anything, you're like, how far away is that storm? Am I seeing something that's 40 miles away? You know, like it's really shocking when the area is that flat. Um, the prairie. Um, what's it? What's it? Safflower? Hmm. Canola, that's it. It's the canola. Uh, they're yellow blossoms, and they're everywhere. So that's how this casino is situated. It's not in Edmonton, Alberta. Edmonton's a city with roads and a freeway and hotels and a, 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 a Holt Renfrew department store and the mall. And, and In fact, I think the largest mall in North America is in Edmonton, is it? I think, yeah, the Taj Mahal of malls. I've not been there because I'm cool, but I've heard about it from Canadian friends. Hmm. And they have a famous hockey team and all that jazz, the Oilers. How come they kept their hockey team? Because Alberta was rich with oil for a long time. So they kept both their Calgary team and their Edmonton team while the other teams from uh, Winnipeg and other cities had to fuck off to the States to find new franchises because that's how the NHL works. Uh, in any case, uh, the River Creek Casino is in Enoch and it's situated in like a field. And uh, so when we out in back of the uh, where we play, you can totally get down with nature then we're going to be at the moore theater in seattle washington if you've not been to the moore theater it's fantastic i'm not saying that this is going to happen again but the last time we played the moore last year eric idle and boz skaggs were there and we brought eric idle up on stage and he did a bit with us i'm not saying it's going to happen again i'm just saying this is the kind of magic that can happen if you put us in a room together what was boz skaggs doing there nothing i met him and he came to the show we got drunk there you are. So uh, great fun and uh, a wonderful time at the Moore Theater. We love Seattle. Then November 4th, 5th, and 6th, we'll be back in my beloved Bay Area at the Civic Center in Marin, California, which is an astounding uh, venue uh, that has 
it's probably 2000 seats and there's no middle aisle. So if you're sitting in the center and an emergency happens, we're all going to die. Uh, I think you have to cross about a hundred seats either way to get to the very center of the theater. I have no idea why it was designed that way, but it's, and to get from the backstage to the stage, you have to go outside as a performer. So you leave the building and walk around the perimeter. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, Marin, you know, what are you going to do with Marin? They're so nice and they're so smart and they're white people and they care. The last time I, I remember we played there, I asked for someone in the audience and their name was Cassandra. And then the next, I was like, is anyone here named Pandora? It got a little, there was two Cassandras and a Pandora. It got a little freaky. There was, every enchantress from the middle myth, mythological times that meant the end of the world was nigh was in the audience that night. When you ask for someone, you don't really hope for Cassandra. Who is Cassandra? She was the bringer of bad news. Uh, then we'll be at the Luther Burbank Center uh, for the Arts in Santa Rosa, which is another uh, fabulous venue that often has a woman sound person. So everything goes really smoothly. When you don't have to deal with the white straight guy, it's amazing how easy the show can go. Uh, then November 6th would be at the Gallo Center in Modesto, California. No, I've not played there, but my guess is there'll be wine. If the word Gallo is involved. Now, if you're not from California, IA, Gallo might be the largest producer of commercial wine in the entire state. If not them, I don't know who is. Um, I wouldn't say it's the finest wine, um, but they have a high-end brand now because they have to play the artisanal market like everyone else. Thank you for sitting through all of that. Now, the show should start any moment. Before we do... Uh, a woman writes me. You can write me at fanmailforgreg at gmail.com. You can also buy my book, The Smartest Book in the World, there. You can also buy my album, In the Ballpark, there. And uh, the uh, Moose and Frank video is still timeless and uh, available for $4.99 off my website, gregproops.com. Fanmailforgreg at gmail.com is the email that you can email me on. I do read them all. Why didn't you respond to mine? I have shit to do. Uh, it, uh, Dawn writes me. And let me just say this to you, Dawn. Go away. I'm no good for you. Think, think what your family will say. Think, think what your... Uh, apparently, I'm the only one in the room who knows the song. Four Seasons. No one saw Jersey Boys. Go away, I'm no good for you. Bong, 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 don. Nobody? Okay. Fuck all y'all. Wow. How about this one? Delta Dawn, what's that flower you have on? Could it be a faded rose from days gone by? And did I hear you say he was a meeting? You have to say that part. A meeting you here today to take you to his mansion in the sky. And then this is where you get to know that the song is a freak show. She's 41 and her daddy still calls her baby. Oh, gross. All the folks round Brownville say she's crazy Cause she walks downtown with a suitcase in her hand Looking for a mysterious dark-haired man Oh yeah, the 70s had so many freak-out songs that were so emotionally fucking disturbing Fancy by Bobby Gentry, Delta Dawn by uh, Helen Reddy There was a lot of upsetting songs, really upsetting I mean, like, how did we live through that decade of crap songs? What was the other Helen Reddy one? Or no, that was Undercover Angel. Right? There was like, Helen Reddy did a song called Angie Baby where a guy comes over to her house and she kills him and stuffs him in the radio. <laughs> what is it? Except something girl with a secret lover who keeps her satisfied. <laughs> I've made myself hysterical. 
What about Helen Reddy? Thank God that blew over. Although I Am Woman is immortal, I'll stand by I Am Woman forever and ever. I have to. It's, it's, the, it's a great, it's a great, it was a great feminist song. I don't know that it holds up. I Am Woman, hear me roar. Come on, it was the 70s. Look, there was a lot of creepy male songs like Mac Davis and stuff. Mac Davis said, don't get hooked on me, which was gross. Yeah, I'm not stopping. It's my show. Get your own podcast. This is your podcast. See how little control there is. Don writes me, Delta Don. What's that flower you have on? It, it is your tradition to sign off your show. It is, you know, I should really read these. I thought it said, is it? It is your tradition to sign off your show with baseball centric page turning bell ringing and bonds purchasing. But have you thought about changing it up a bit? As in, as in celebrating a little feminism with notable women. One could easily make every page they turn a Betty page, every bell a Madeline Dow, and, and buying bonds would be lovely with Anita Bonds. Anita Bonds is a councilwoman and um, uh, a council person in Washington, D.C. Uh, Madeline, or have I got it wrong? Anita Bonds is a singer. Madeline Bell is a politician. And everybody knows who Betty Page is. She's the one with the bangs wearing the leopard print laying on a couch. And I, she's still alive, Betty Page? Nice Christian lady, as I, my understanding was, that she became a nice Christian lady. I mean, I'm sure she was always a nice Christian lady, but there you are. Uh, thanks for such a great podcast. Thank you. Hope to see you live in Alaska. Me too. Um, you, your mouth to God's ear, as they say. I was in Alaska once years ago. I really loved it. I'd love to go back anytime you ask. Um, I, I understand, uh, uh, as Sarah Palin said, um, the reason you need firearms in Alaska is a moose can sneak up on you. And I... I I have special glasses with little rearview mirrors that I've, I've put some sil- silicate on the end of my little mercury on the ends of the corners of my glasses so that should a moose sneak up on... By the way, moose in general, quite large. And you'll smell a moose, oh, I don't know, probably half a mile away before it gets anywhere near you. Um, when I was there, uh, I bought a bag of Matanuska Valley Thunderfuck, um, which is their weed. And it was their weed. It probably has a different name now. It's probably hybrid, artisanal, single origin, you know, um, coffee bean weed. And um, I bought it from the sound guy at the club, which was the Pier Street Annex. We would finish the show at 11 o'clock at night and walk outside and put our sunglasses on. And there would be mosquitoes that were so big, they'd be like, hey. <laughs> like, that's how big they were. They'd land on your shoulder like an owl, like Merlin, you know, like an owl. And you're like, oh, fuck, you're huge. And uh, we had star. I've told that story. The, the beds were completely wet and when we slept there the first night and me and a comic named Huck Flynn and uh, so I complained to the club guy the next day and we went to the store and bought a bureau and they gave us Star Wars sheets I slept in like with little Yodas and R2D2s wow but I'd love to go back uh, it's hard to get Ryan to fly uh, up to Alaska I guess he could fly from Seattle to where Dawson no you have to go straight it's a straight shot it's a straight shot where are you going to stop you can stop in BC. He could take a boat. He could take a boat. It takes a couple days to take a boat, I think. I don't know. It's worth it. Anyways, uh, I hope to see you live in Alaska, too. In Steely Dan, we trust Don. Thank you, Don. I will try to close today's show if I remember with, with made every page you t- turn be a Betty page. I said if I remember. Uh, here we go. Well, I was talking about Vincente Fox, and we went to Politicon a couple weeks ago and had a groovy time there and met lots of funny people. 
and uh, hung out with some groovy comedians like Alonzo Bowden and Al Madrigal and uh, uh, Andy Kindler, whatnot. Um, uh, Liz Winstead, who's a, an amazing activist. And we saw Vincent uh, Fox speak. I spoke about him on the show last week. But what I didn't mention was that not only in addition to him being suave, debonair, sophisticated, intelligent, charismatic, and articulate, uh, and having a vision for the future, he was also heavily pro-choice and said that every woman had the right to choose whatever she wanted to do with her body. And he believed in legalizing all drugs. This was a former president of Mexico. He said all drugs will be legalized. That removes the criminal element. And that's spoken from a man who had to deal with uh, the countless you know, murders and mayhem that go on in, in Mexico uh, at the hands of the drug cartels and whatnot. So he would know as well as anyone. And I trust his opinion in that regard. Um, and I think that prohibition is the thing that leads to... Uh, that in crime in that kind of area, prohibition and of alcohol led to the mafia having an enormous foothold in American culture, and the prohibition of drugs <clears throat> hasn't really helped things along too much. We lost the war on drugs, and um, a lot of t- uh, terrible uh, and illegal incarcerations have happened because of that. So I'm with the president of Mexico. Well, you sound like a libertarian now. Yeah, except I wear all my clothes and I can shave my beard libertarians wow they give me a pain in the libertor uh here's some good news first jennifer gave me this judge hands sweeping stinging defeat to mississippi's anti-lgbtq bill we've been talking about uh, lgbtq rights for the last few weeks on the show and with good reason it was a religious liberty law now you know what that means religious liberty laws mean it gives religious people the right to discriminate discriminate against whoever they discriminate want against and that's what they do like they don't want homos coming in their store or or in the old days you would have called this Jim Crow. Uh, you, uh, oh, we have the right to. Uh, it's a meme that goes around the internet, but it's very, very true. Um, slavery was legal. Segregation was legal. Um, it, 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 justice isn't meted out by legality. It, the, the, it has to be uh, determined. Do you understand? Um, slavery is a tradition. Segregation is a tradition. Traditions and legality have nothing to do with what's right and what's wrong sometimes. But what about Hillary Clinton? Shut up. Um, Religious liberty law. Roberta Kaplan, the attorney and mastermind of the lawsuit uh, against HB 1523 with Eddie Windsor, whom she, Edie rather, whom she represented in her successful effort to challenge the federal same-sex marriage ban. Anti-LGBTQ activists just suffered their worst defeat since the Supreme Court's marriage equality decision. A root so stinging, we would say root, right? A route. I mean, you know, when you're talking about losing a battle by a a landslide, a rout. So stinging and decisive that it calls into question the viability of their entire strategy post-Obergfell. The drubbing came in the form of an astonishing 60-page opinion by U.S. District Judge Carlton W. Reeves, blocking every single part of Mississippi's sweeping, vicious, anti-LGBTQ segregation law from taking effect. The law granted special protection to three religious beliefs, those who oppose same-sex marriage, those who oppose sex outside of marriage, and those who dislike trans and gender nonconforming people. Starting July 1, it would have allowed religious landlords to evict gay and trans renters, permitted religious employers to fire workers for being LGBT or Q, granted state and private adoption agencies the right to turn away same-sex couples, and allowed private businesses to refuse service to those people given a doctor's right to refuse to treat LGBTQ people in most circumstances, and permitted clerks to refuse to marry same-sex couples. You remember the famous clerk from last year whose name I'm not going to bring up because she's had quite enough time in the limelight. 
Hours before it was set to take effect, Reeves issued an injunction holding that the law in its entirety violates equal protection clause and the establishment clause. Um, his decision marks a momentous occasion. The first time a federal judge has found the so-called religious liberty bills designed to disadvantage LGBTQ people violate the U.S. Constitution. Reeves' opinion is worth paying careful attention to. Its findings and logic are certain to be invoked in similar decisions across the country in the coming years. Much like the recent ruling that Justice Breyer wrote the majority for about HB2 in Texas that put undue burden on women uh, and their ability to procure um, health care, i.e. an abortion for themselves. Uh, this will be cited and used. And as you can see, the way the Supreme Court's leaning right now, my darlings, uh, in the United States, um, I know Sotomayor voted against the other bill, but it was 5-3 for uh, defeating HB2. And that's a sweeping decision. And as soon as they add another judge, and by the way, we could stop just here for a sidebar and point out that Mitch McConnell who's very powerful, as you know, and uh, Speaker of the House, uh, said that whoever the next uh, appointee to the Supreme Court would be would have to be signed off on by the National Rifle Association. And that's a fairly <clears throat> shocking thing to say. Why are we giving that kind of credence to what is, in essence, a lobbying organization? What position do they have in American society other than, as Woody Allen once said, to supply criminals with guns? Um. Uh, when the Supreme Court it does fill its vacancies, and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 83, Breyer 79, and um, I'm missing one, Kennedy 70-something, they're likely to either retire or step down or pass away. And uh, so there's three, possibly four, if Clarence Thomas retires appointments. You realize now what that will do to the balance of the court. There are three conservative judges, and if you can add four more to the liberal side, some will have gone away, you see. Um, there could even be a... Uh, a 6-3 balance for, I don't know, a good 15, 20 years. And then, honeys, um, we can talk about hot action. We can talk about uh, redoing Citizens United. We can talk about gay rights. We can talk about abortion, um, gun laws. Lots and lots of things can get adjudicated uh, in a Supreme Court um, that active. Let's see here. Skipping right along. Uh, the text in history writes indicate that the bill, this is what the judge wrote, indicate that the bill was the state's attempt to put LGBT citizens back in their place after Obergefell, which was a decision that happened uh, recently. The, de the deprivation of equal protection under the law is HB 1523's very essence, he concludes. It violates the 14th Amendment. Mississippi is certain to appeal. This ruling to the U.S. Court of Appeals to the Fifth Circuit, which leans conservative, but Reel's ruling is essentially bulletproof on everything from technical issues like standing uh, to broad constitutional questions like equal dignity. His opinion is largely a recitation of well-established Supreme Court decisions highlighting their stark relevance. This is a landmark ruling, one whose breadth, depth, and analytical incisiveness cannot be easily rebuked. Reeves has given LGBTQ advocates their biggest triumph since Obergefell. Any state looking forward to pass similar anti-LGBTQ religious liberty laws has now been warned. Um, and there's a small update at the bottom here. Uh, well, th this, this is the line, and th this is from Slate Magazine. I didn't write this line. The Constitution will not tolerate your efforts to discriminate against LGBTQ people under the feeble guise of selective religious freedom. The post has been updated to reflect the work of the Mississippi Center for Justice in the litigation. There's also cases pending in several southern states. As there are about abortion in other states. Uh, this happened. Uh, Jennifer sent me this one today, but I'm going to read a much more recent article that I found from today's Los Angeles Times. This is from uh, we're recording on July 8th. Governor Jerry Brown on Friday 
signed six gun control bills into law, including a requirement that ammunition purchasers undergo background checks. The governor vetoed five other measures, including an expansion of the use of restraining orders to take guns from people deemed to be dangerous. My goal in signing these bills is to enhance public safety by tightening our existing laws in a responsible and focused manner. The House here in California uh, handed him a bunch of bills last week, and finally he signed the one today. Vitas included a bill that would have allowed co-workers, mental health workers, and school officials to petition the court for gun violence restraining order. In vetoing the bill, Brown wrote he'd agreed last year to approve a law allowing family members and law enforcement to petition the courts for restraining orders. It could be premature. The governor's action comes one day after the legislature approved 12 gun control bills that were introduced in response to the December mass shooting in San Bernardino that killed 14 people. If you're one of those people who thinks gun control bills don't work, if you're one of those people who thinks that um, uh, uh, gun-free zones don't work. Um, Australia had a mass shooting 24 years ago, and they banned guns and took them all back, and they haven't had a mass shooting since. I don't know how much more plainly I can explain it to you. But there's uh, 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 30% of the people in the United States have guns. Um, and there, there's how many people in the United States? 300 and something million. So that's quite a lot of millions of people. Um, it can still be done. Uh, I'm going to Montreal in Canada. Yes, there was a mass shooting there 25, 30 years ago. They don't have them on a regular basis. But what about last year when the guy turned to, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the governor's action, let's see, the National Rifle Association Institute for Legislative Action accused the governor of exploiting the terrorist attacks for political gain. That's rich. Since they tried to say that it was uh, uh, ISIS attacked and that the, the couple in San Bernardino was acting out on behalf of the Middle Eastern forces that be and that this was some sort of extension of their power. And that they insist that everything be called an Islamic terrorist attack. Um, that wouldn't be using the terrorist attacks for political gain, wouldn't it? Um, I think anytime anyone takes out a gun and shoots a bunch of people, it's a terrorist attack. What do you call terror? Governor Jerry Brown signed today a draconian gun control package that turns blah, blah. Uh, you can read it if you like. Uh, I know that I've been urging you lately to look at both sides of every issue and don't just damn people who disagree with you and think they're stupid because they hold a different opinion than you. However, the National Rifle Association is very well funded and can defend themselves. If you find that you must defend them, good for you. Um, I, I don't feel like I have to provide uh, their point of view in this instance. Uh, bills the governor signed will require an ID and background check, ban position of ammunition magazines that hold more than 10 bullets, restrict the loaning of guns without background checks to close family members. Bills the governor vetoed would have required lost or stolen guns to be required. He vetoed a bunch of gun control bills. So uh, he did do some work in that regard. And uh, we appreciate uh, Governor Brown being so forward thinking in that uh, way. Let's see here. Moving right along because you know what's been going on this week and it is not good, Bill. Uh, let's see here. This is another, this is something I wanted to, a, a bill that uh, California lawmakers had sent. Uh, a low-income housing bond is still alive for the November ballot. State Senator Jim Beal, Democrat, San Jose, the author of a $3 billion proposal to build low-income housing statewide still wants the measure to appear before the voters, even though it won't meet the deadline for getting issues on the ballot. The measure from Jim Beal has passed the Senate but is now in the Assembly Appropriations Committee awaiting action before it would reach the Assembly floor. It requires two-third vote to pass. We have an initiative process in California. A certain amount of people have to sign uh, to get an initiative on the ballot. Uh, this didn't happen in the case of this bill, so it has to go to the House. Um, I know it's all very civics and governmental, but this is what keeps people from getting upset about things like voter fraud and not counting the votes. If you know how the government works and it's technical, then you won't get upset when you feel when you see how parliamentary procedure goes. In any case, 
he's aiming to get the measure approved by the Assembly Committee prior to the August 12th deadline for fiscal legislation. And this is why I'm reading this. The bond would pay for new housing construction, specifically, what am I, a five-year-old? Let's have some Pischetti. Specifically, for development near transit and high-density urban areas and provide housing for farm workers and mortgage assistance. Farm workers are some of the lowest people on the ladder here in the state of California. They have to work backbreaking hours out in the sun all day long. Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez fought ceaselessly when I was young. Uh, and there's, of course, the United Farm Workers still fighting ceaselessly to get things like, uh, when I was a kid, long-handled hose. They gave them all short-handled hose. They had to fight to get hose that were longer. They had to fight to get toilets out in the field. They had to fight to get drinking water. I'm not kidding about all these things. You would call it slavery. But this is what's happening. And by the way, the food you're eating in whatever state you're in, it's from California. Uh, we grow everything here. Uh, well, what about corn? Yeah, hooray for Illinois. Um, the, if it's an avocado, if it's an orange, and it's not a green, funky-looking orange from Florida, it's from California. Where do you think everything fucking grows? Where did we discover last night that Cortland is where they grow... All the pears in the world, right? Every Bartlett pear is from fucking Cortland. If you go to Gilroy, that's where all the fucking garlic's from. If you go to Fresno, that's where all the raisins are from. I mean, you can go to different cities all over California, and there's a different... Uh, um, uh, Watsonville's where all the artichokes come from. Santa Cruz is where all the pumpkins come from. I mean, this isn't fucking... This is farming, you guys. California is one giant farm. Outside of the cities, drive fucking east. And then drive through the middle of uh, California. Adam Ferrer called it to me today, Mauschwitz, uh, uh, through the I-5. It's all farms. And so this is very important that farm workers get mortgage assistance and housing. Uh, a group of legislators sent Jerry Brown a $2 billion bond measure that would provide housing for the homeless who suffer from mental illness. The homeless in California who suffer from mental illness have been suffering since Reagan was governor here in the late 60s, early 70s, and he closed all the mental hospitals and put everybody out on the street. Um, the, the vast majority of, uh, let me put it this way, a lot of the people that you see on the street uh, in the state of California um, require some sort of assistance and help. Uh, it's not that they're evil. It's that something has befallen them and that they have some sort of condition. And what they need most of all is, is love and mercy. Uh, and uh, the state and rich people in the state refuse to provide any of this. Uh, it's been very important to cut people's property taxes. It's very important to make rich people richer. But it's never important to um, help the poor. And uh, I, I, that's why I wanted to read you this part about the bill because I think it gives us hope to carry on. The proposal, part of a plan unveiled by state Democrats in January, would fund new and refurbished housing in communities across California with proceeds from a tax on incomes above $1 million approved by voters in 2004 to fund mental health programs. I think that's beautiful. Republicans and Democrats alike recognize that finding permanent supportive housing for the chronologically, chronically homeless suffering from mental illness will improve the quality of life in our communities and give hope to thousands of Californians. Uh, the proposal earned bipartisan support after GOD, GOP demands for a separate effort to boost funding for helping homeless veterans and youth, and good for them. We fought to create more oversight and accountabilities in how funds to serve the state's mentally ill prop, uh, population are spent, said Assembly GOP leader Chad Mays, Republican Yucca Valley. Guys, where is Yucca Valley? Exactly. Uh, an initiative that aims to speed up executions in California qualified for the November 8th ballot on Thursday. Barf. 
There's nothing about executions that needs to be speeded up. It's been proven time and time again, and I'm about to read you some gun arguments here. The death penalty is not a deterrent. It costs more to execute people than it does to keep them in prison. But why they're dead? Because the appeals process, you have to understand what the, uh, the legality of all this. The death penalty is an abomination. Um, and the countries, as I've said many, many times, China, Iran, and Saudi Arabia uh, that perform the death penalty are not a neighborhood that we want to be in as a freedom-loving nation. The death penalty was out of vogue here in California for years. Uh, I disapprove of it strenuously. Um, death row killers earn their sentences recommended by juries and imposed by judges across California. Justice demands those sentences be carried out. These killers should not be rewarded by repealing the death penalty. As you found in many cases, in many states, uh, Illinois, for example, um, they find DNA evidence retroactively. They find that there were mistrials. They find that there are miscarriages of justice. Death row is not a place where you should send people that they should be executed immediately. The appeals process has to be honored. And a lot of times people, a lot of times it's too general. In several specific cases, let me put it this way. What's worse, to have someone languish on death row who's actually a murderer or to kill innocent people who are purported to be murderers? What weighs easier on your conscience? Let me just ask you that, citizens of Gotham City. Uh, moving on. Oh, let's see here. Yes, the island. Of this, uh, moving on here. Uh, I wanted to read you. This was in the L.A. Times uh, this morning. and I'm not going to read the whole thing. This has been a terrible week, as you know. Um, with the uh, the deaths of Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, um, uh, the civilians, and all the policemen in Dallas, uh, it's been an awful week for America. Um, but this is, by the way, there's GoFundMe's for Philando Castile's family and Alton Sterling's family, and you can uh, go. We're going to go back to that. But first, I want uh, to read you an op-ed piece that was in the Los Angeles Times today. And um, this was written by Evan DeFilippis and Devin Hughes, who are uh, gun control advocates. The National Rifle Association and its allies have their post-shooting routine down cold. They wait a day or two and respond with a blistering array of attacks against gun safety advocates calling for reform. No matter what the circumstances, they make the same points, which unsurprisingly often appear detached from the realities on the ground. Let me just go through them very quickly here. A good guy with a gun would have stopped it. In discussing Orlando, Donald Trump, the presumptive Republican nominee mused, if you had guns on the other side, you wouldn't have had the tragedy you had. Hmm. In this instance, we don't have to ponder how different the outcome would have been. A good guy with a gun was there at Pulse nightclub. A police officer working extra duty was armed and there, and he exchanged fire uh, with the gunman, and he was unable to prevent him from getting entrance to the club. <sighs> Most armed citizens fare worse than their police counterparts. In an independent commission study... By the National Gun Victims Action Council, researchers put 77 participants with varying levels of firearms training through three realistic self-defense scenarios, and they did not make it. Overwhelming empirical evidence corroborates the situation. Of the 160 active shooting incidents identified by the FBI from 2000 to 2013, only one was stopped by an armed civilian. Shooters target gun-free zones. Even before most of the details about Orlando were released, John Lott, a pro-gun commentator, already is proclaiming the dangers of gun-free zones. It's demonstrably false. Um, Umpqua University and many others were gun-free zones. If we examine the 33 mass public shootings in which four or more people were killed between 209 and 214, the evidence reveals 18 occurred in, guns, in areas where guns were not banned. No laws could have prevented the tragedy. 
In the gun control debate, nothing is more destructive than distraction. Is there a single viable gun control proposal that would keep a committed jihadist from arming himself? In the case of Orlando, the answer is yes. In Canada, the gunman could not have attained a license to purchase a firearm because of his history of domestic violence, signs of mental instability, and vocal support for terrorist organizations. Point four, terrorists and criminals aren't deterred by laws. Chris Cox is the executive director of uh, the NRA. Uh, and uh, asserted uh, radical Islamic terrorists are not deterred by gun control laws. And Marco Rubio said it a lot during his campaign. Applying this logic, these two write, why have any laws? If criminals are just going to run red lights, why have traffic penalties? The NRA's reasoning is a prescription for chaos, and it doesn't withstand contact with empirical reality. There's clear evidence that laws do influence criminal behavior. For instance, after the 96 Oklahoma City bombing, federal legislation made it more difficult for consumers to obtain bomb-making ingredients and easier for law enforcement to monitor that. This new oversight led terrorists to revamp their tactics, replacing bombs with guns. 95% of the terrorism deaths in the U.S. between 2002 and 2015 were firearms, not bombs. So yes, laws work. Because they're laws, you see. Guns are just a tool like knives and hammers. Um, I'm so sick of this one. If I have to repeat it a million times, you can't kill 25, 30 people in a minute or two with a hammer. And to give you a horrible graphic example, in 2012, and you may remember this in Chumping, China, a, a guy came onto a schoolyard and stabbed 23 children and one adult. Then, on the same day, in Newtown, Connecticut, a guy shot 20 students and 8 adults. At Sandy Hook, all 20 children and eight, 6 of the 8 adults died. In China, no one died. So, uh, let's just drop these arguments. I don't want to hear them anymore. Don't bring them to me. Don't tweet them at me. Don't run them by me. Um, facts are important sometimes. So, there we are. Uh, it's been an awful week here for shootings uh, in the old United States. And... Um, this is something I wanted to read to you because it's from a site called Maximum Middle Age. Um, Dallas Police Chief, uh, first of all, a couple quotes that Jennifer gave me here. This, uh, well, this is the night, two nights after the, one night after the Dallas uh, massacre. Um, the Dallas Police Chief, David Brown, who, by the way, was handled it quite well and was a calming influence, aside from the fact that we used a robot to blow someone up to end this, which I think is the first time we've used one on civilians in our own country. We often use robots to kill people in foreign countries. Not only was the, kill, the killer um, an American citizen, he was a veteran as well. Dallas Police Chief David Brown said the shooting during a massive demonstration should not affect citizens' rights to protest. I don't think I've ever been happier to hear a law enforcement official, a peace officer, say this. Because um, obviously this was a terrible week for the police. They did not come off looking good in Baton Rouge or Minneapolis. And that goes along with, oh my God, you know, we can Baltimore, New York, Ferguson, Oakland, Los Angeles. The list goes on and on. In any case, Police Chief David Brown said this. We are not going to let a coward who would ambush police officers change our democracy. We're not going to do it. Our city, our country is better than that. Police are guardians of this great democracy. Freedom to protest, freedom of speech, freedom for expression. Those are all First Amendment rights, not the Second Amendment. That's the right to bear arms. Our freedoms we fight for with our lives. It's what makes us who we are as Americans. We risk our lives for those rights. We won't militarize our policing standards. I urge you and beg you. Uh, as fellow Americans and those of you outside of our country, not to succumb to fear. Um, it, there's a lot of guns everywhere and there's a lot of violence everywhere and it continues on and on. 
arming ourselves and making America into an armed camp that you have to pass through metal detectors to do the simplest uh, events of your life is not going to solve that and make it better. But you just gave me six arguments why laws help. Yeah, laws, not military. This is this is the police chief of Dallas who went through a massacre last night. He said police are guardians of the great democracy, freedom to protest. It happened at a Black Lives Matter rally. Understand the massacre happened by an outside shooter who didn't really care about Black Lives Matter and was using it as an excuse uh, to shoot police. And the police chief of Dallas recognizes that, that our freedoms are more important uh, than the purported right to make everyone safe. No one can make you safe all the time. Uh, least of all demagogues. Mayor Mike Rawlings uh, of Dallas said, uh, I've I've blown the quote out here. Well, I'll find it uh, again before we, um, maybe Jennifer can find it here before we go down. This is from uh, a maximum middle age. Oh, I wanted to, um, sorry, I wanted to uh, go over a couple of things here about Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. You've already read about them, I'm certain. And what a, pillar of the community Philando Castile was. You've also read about and seen the circumstances of the shootings, which were most awful. Understand this. Um, black people get killed in this country for running away from the police, for not running away from the police, for sitting in their car, for laughing, for carrying a toy gun, for having a taillight out, for not signaling, for things that no one else gets shot for. White people certainly don't get shot for. As Jesse Williams said on the BET Awards two weeks ago, every day white people are apprehended for all these crimes and not shot for them. By the way, the boring preachy part started in case you hadn't noticed. Um, for maximum middle age, concrete ways to be an actual ally to black people. Uh, and people, uh, I'm just going to skip through this article here, but I want to read you a couple things. What can we do as white folks and allies? We can do a lot beyond posting sad or outraged status updates on social media. Here are some real world concrete ways you can understand that black lives are important and won't stand for them to be taken away in this manner every more. Get political. Call your police station and ask them what they are doing to ensure incidents like that will not happen in your community. Demand to know how they're training their officers to use non-lethal tactics. Call your local government officials. Call your city council members or your mayor and ask how they are holding police responsible for their actions and ensuring that they work and remove racial, racial bias from their ranks. Get in touch with your representatives on a federal level. That would be your Congress people. All of this is equally easily available online. And believe me, it does work. If 20 people call on the same issue in a day, they take notice. Believe me, they take notice. Why do you think the Congress of the United States has been staging sit-ins about gun control? Not because that they personally believe that gun control is a good thing, although many of them probably do. It's that the political momentum is on their side now. Enough people have complained to them. Enough violence has happened that they're being forced to act. That's how politics works, and that's how the government works. Check out Campaign Zero, which you can find on their website, which can easily help you learn more about what politicians can and should be doing. Give your money. Many of the folks murdered leave behind families that could really use your help. Put your money where your sad face emoji is and, do and donate to these verified crowdfunding pages. GoFundMe for Philando Castile's family. GoFundMe for Alton Sterling's family. Collect your people. People of color should not be expected to do the work on this. Um, no, because they're the ones who are victimized by this. Um, if you're a white person and you simply don't understand at this late date, or if you're any color and you simply don't understand at this late date, the justice isn't meted out equally. You've got to educate yourself. You be the one to post links about racial bias. You explain why all lives matter is bullshit. At the same time, it's your duty to make your space a safe and welcoming one for your friends and family of color. Um, 
the videos going around showing the murder. Watch them, bear witness, but please do not post. Autoplay links to them on your timelines. People of color should choose if they want to view them. However, white folk, we need to watch to understand the fragility of black lives so that we can stop this. But do not watch and then post on your page looking for cookies. Um, read and share articles about people of color from these murders, elevate their voices. And there's lots of different uh, articles here. Five facts that will absolutely infuriate you about police and racist violence by Maisha Z. Johnson, Alton Sterling and when black lives stop mattering by Roxanne Gay, the fine line between awareness and exploitation by Ebony Gassine Wilkins, Alton Sterling's guilty of breathing my black by Nafir care. That's K E R R. Alton Sterling's Death Changes the Conversation for Every Black Family by Crystal Lewis Brown. And for my son, the event, The Police Leave You Fatherless, David TSS. Say their names. Post about them on Facebook or Twitter. Use their names. Use pictures their family would like you to see. Not necessarily the ones the media is promoting. Remember them as people, fathers, mothers, as somebody's child, brother, sister, aunt, or uncle, as a human being, as a black person worthy of dignity, respect, and that their life was taking them. Um, too soon. That's what we can do. I will go back and give you the name of the website here just so you can read this article if you wish. It is called Maximum Middle Age and therefore you can find all the links to all the things I was talking about on there. Maximum Middle Age is the website. You can write all the read all the articles on there and you can donate uh, to the GoFundMe pages for the victims. Uh, I've read you the gun control arguments here. Uh, let's see. Moving on. Mayor Mike Rawlings of Dallas gave a press conference uh, today, and he said this, we as a city, as a state, as a nation are struggling with racial issues. They continue to divide us. Yes, it's that word race, and we've got to attack it head on. I will tell you, this is on my generation of leaders. It's on our watch that we've allowed this to continue to fester, that we've led the next generation down a vicious path of rhetoric and actions that pit one against the other. Um, That's beautiful. And um, I, I would agree not just about the vicious path of rhetoric that pits us one against each other, but that it's on us to make this better. And when you see the Twitterverse and uh, the interweb and the politicians light up with hideous divisive rhetoric, like this is on you, Obama, and this is on the Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, that's why this violence happened. It isn't. It isn't. It's a systemic, symptomatic thing that's been going on for hundreds of years. We've talked about it before on the show about how after the Civil War, when uh, uh, slavery was abolished, um, the slave patrols became uh, a a way to contain the black community and that they basically uh, wouldn't let black people out at night. You've heard of sundown laws and that all of this is really a a, a direct extension of – uh, the police departments being used, uh, especially of late, as um, revenue uh, uh, sources of revenue for communities, uh, as we found out in the Ferguson report, that they were required by their community to harass black people, uh, and that that leads to systemic violence, that leads to systemic injustice. This isn't a big mystery, you guys, and it's also not an ephemeral thing that we can't put our finger on. It's a very specific thing. It has nothing to do with having a black president. Having a black president has been a grand and glorious experience because at the end of the day, it turned out he was a sensitive, is a sensitive, intelligent, forward-thinking person. However, uh, 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 strapped he is by conditions that don't allow him to change everything at once. The president is not a dictator. If you're a Trump supporter, and I love you, 
deep inside as a human being. You have to understand that all these things Trump is promising, I'm going to go in and I'm going to knock these heads around and I'm going to tell these assholes what to do. He can't do it. No president has been able to do it. Even W wasn't able to do everything he wanted to do. And he was a very powerful president. Lyndon Baines Johnson wasn't able to do everything he uh, promised to do. A president's not a tyrant. There's other levels of government. There's other issues that have to be dealt with. The president can't go to Texas and make everything okay about guns today. Let me put it that way. There has to be a long view. The long view includes politics, legislation, and the justice system. They move at a glacier's pace, but they do move. Um, otherwise we wouldn't have gay marriage and abortion rights and things like that. Um, guns are just the next in a long line of things and justice uh, for the underclass, uh, particularly black people is obviously paramount and has been for the last several years. It's been explosive here. And yet people still get fussy when I do jokes about this on stage and, and they think I'm being mean to the cops or whatever. The, the, the cops obviously, uh, uh are victims too of violence. Uh, it, it happened last night in a demonstrative and horrible way. Um, what we can't get hung up on is that, well, there's no solution. There's too many guns and Obama did this and Obama didn't. The last thing we kind of need to do is fight with each other right now. There's been far too much fighting. Uh, we need to uh, hold hands and form a fucking circle. And I, if I sound silly saying that, there we go. A couple of groovy things, uh, and then we're going to move on to the night, because I always like to leave everybody with a sense of hope. I know that the violence seems overwhelming, and I know that uh, this week of massacres has left a sour, bitter taste in everyone's mouth, and uh, good in that regard. Let's understand that it's something bad and that this isn't the new normal any more than politicians using racism and homophobia and misogyny to advance their cause is normal. It's not normal. Uh, it, it's been used forever that that doesn't make it good and right and true. Um, this one uh, delighted me. Several people sent it to me. Thank you for sending it to me. Uh, the million people who did. The Sonoma Stompers are set to make history by signing two women to their roster. That's a baseball team. In the world of independent baseballs filled with unique promotions and stranger giveaways, the Sonoma Stompers of the Pacific Association, um, last year they became the first team to cede control to a couple of symmetrically inclined baseball riders, and they were the first to have an openly gay professional player on their roster. Many teams host LGBTQ Pride Nights. The Stompers celebrated theirs by moving Sean Connery from the bullpen to the rotation, his teammates wearing rainbow-colored socks and armbands in support. And now they're going to be the first professional team to have women on the field since Tony Stone, Peanut Johnson, and Connie Morgan played for the Negro Leagues back in the 50s. Um, I believe Connie's still alive, is she not? Or is it Peanut? Um, because they took pictures with... Uh, that wonderful black pitcher who pitched for uh, uh, in the Teenage World Series. Uh, when the Stompers take the field in San Rafael on July 1st, which has already happened, 17-year-old Kelsey Whitmore will start in left, and 25-year-old Stacy Piagnano, Piagnano will take the mound, armed with a knuckle curve slider and fastball. It's not a one-game stunt. Uh, this is what the GM said, um, whose name is fantastically. The general manager for the, the Stompers is Theo Fightmaster. I didn't make that up. No, he doesn't have to get against the Thundercats at any point, but he would. This isn't a one-day event, 
That's been done a dozen times. Let's give women a chance to be part of the team. Let's give women a chance to play against men. What will they learn? What will they have not been coached because they've had the same coaching as boys? I remember being really disappointed with my sister's coaches because they coached the girls a lot different than how I was coached. He hopes it's just the start of a women's baseball movement. While other countries like Japan have high school girls, high school baseball that simply doesn't exist in America. Women get funneled into softball. If they want to play baseball, they end up playing softball. Francis Ford Coppola owns the team. Fightmaster admits while he grew up with his mom being a baseball fan in the house and his sister starring in the varsity baseball team, he would not have thought of us on his own. During a meeting with Coppola and his wife at their vineyard in Geyserville, the director told Fightmaster of his hope to have a co-ed baseball team. Isn't that beautiful? I love Francis Ford Coppola for doing that. Um, so they have a 17-year-old and a 25-year-old woman on their team, and I think it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, there are a number of women the team were interested in, players like uh, Malika Underwood and Tamara Holmes. A number of them had jobs and careers they couldn't interrupt to sign up for an independent pro team. Not even on their shortlist uh, when they saw Piagno displaying a good arm while playing third base and saw that she'd no-hit Puerto Rico at the Pan American Games. They were quickly intrigued. At least a three-year endeavor with Coppola, and they hope to find more, a couple of more women who say, I've always wanted to play baseball and never had the chance. Jennifer gave me this article. Meet the women who were part of the Olympics' first all-refugee team. Uh, this will give you chills. The International Olympic Commission announced yesterday that four women and six men are part of the first all-refugee team. Dig that, you guys. The refugee Olympic team, as it will be known, will compete in running, swimming, and judo, and is made up of athletes from South Sudan. That's right. As you recall, several years ago, Sudan broke up into two countries, Sudan and South Sudan. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, which you may remember as a Zaire, and before that, the Belgian Congo, if you go back to the old days, Ethiopia, and Syria. Obviously, these refugees have no home, no team, no flag, no national anthem, said the International Olympic Committee president, Thomas Bach, in a statement. We will offer them a home in the Olympic Village together with the athletes of the word that says wor word. I believe they meant to say world. The Olympic anthem will be played in their honor and the Olympic flag will lead them into the Olympic Stadium. This will be a symbol of hope for all the refugees in our world and will make the world better aware of the magnitude of this crisis. It's also a signal to the international community that refugees are our fellow human beings and are an enrichment to society. Now, mind you, this is the IOC, one of the most staunch, male, insanely corrupt organizations that lives on Earth next to the uh, CONCAF and the people who, the bloody soccer federation. Um, in any case, good for them for letting um, these athletes play. And I'm about to read you their names. But what he said is beautifully true. Refugee athletes will show the world that despite the unimaginable tragedies they have faced, anyone can contribute to society through their talent, skills, and strength of the human spirit. I really get sick of it when people go, the Olympics shouldn't be politicized. There's nothing but politics about any giant international sporting event. There's really no way around that. You may have heard that the Russian team is not going to participate because they violated every drug testing law. Um, this was not a, a decision that I think they made lightly. Sebastian Coe, who was an Olympic miler, or 1500 meter, if you will, uh, and is head, uh, one of the executives of the IOC, and now he's known as Lord Co. in England, he's been given a title, um, was very determined uh, about what happened. And um, it's, a, it's a disappointment because we want everyone to play. I don't want to go to the Olympics like in 80 and 84. And if you're old enough, you'll remember. If you're young, you won't remember. Jimmy Carter boycotted the American participation in the 1980 Moscow Olympics because the Russians invaded Afghanistan. Ironic? You be the judge. In 84, the Russians returned the favor and simply boycotted the Los Angeles Olympics because we had boycotted their Olympics. So a bunch of people won medals in 80 and 84. 
Carl Lewis dominated in the 84 Olympics in LA, but he wasn't participating against any of Russia's top athletes. And Russia, he, Carl Lewis was old enough to play in the 1980 Olympics. And if you remember Carl Lewis, he was a long jumper. He was a miler. He was a, 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 a middle distance, uh, I mean, a, a relay runner. And I might have done hurdles as well for all. I might be leaving out a couple of sports. Uh, and Carl Lewis played on many Olympic teams, but he missed his first chance when he was 18 because we boycotted. And that's the tragedy of it is to not get to see these great Russian athletes play against us. We want to play against everyone. That's what the Olympics is about. So it's so beautiful to see a refugee team and, um, no countries have endured more mayhem than, uh, the democratic Republic of the Congo, Ethiopia, Syria, and the Sudan, um, here they are. Let's see here. Uh, Angelina Nadal, country of origin, South Sudan, now living in Kenya. Sport, the 1500, one of my favorite races. Um, the 1500 is what we in America would call the mile. It's just short of a mile, of course. Um, there's been so many great uh, milers over time. And uh, I'm very excited to see her run Ms. Nadal in the 1500. Uh, let's see here. According to the IOC dossier, she was recognized as a refugee in 2014. She arrived in Kenya in 20, 2002 to escape from the war and got involved in running in high school. She's been training with the Tegla Laroop Foundation, named after her current coach, and her family's still in South Sudan. I'll see many places I've never seen before. I might earn some money to at least improve the life of my family. Rose Natiki Lokonyan from South Sudan, now living in Kenya. She runs the 800. The 800 is the longest of the dashes and is a real fucking cracker. Uh, the 800 is about halfway around the track, right? Uh, and they really go full tilt boogie on that one. She left her country 14 years ago and sp she's 23, spent 13 of those years running in uh, the Kakumu refugee camp in Kenya, where she placed second in a running competition running barefoot. So if you were thinking about complaining today that it was raining or that you didn't get what you liked at Chipotle, okay. Uh, her four siblings continue to live in Kakumu and her parents are still in South Sudan. Uh, let's see. Here's the next one. Yolanda Bokasa Mabika, uh, country of origin, Democratic Republic of the Congo, now living in Brazil. Judo. Uh, Mabika fled her home of uh, Bukavu three years ago after the Civil War and fellow team member with the brilliant name of Popoli Masenga uh, from competing as professional judokas. She made the asylum bid to remain in Brazil after the 2013 judo championships were held in Rio. My message to refugees would be not to give up hope and to keep believing to have faith in their hearts. We went through a lot of suffering in the Congo, and this is still the case nowadays. This is the case of all refugees from the world who are suffering from family losses, the wars, the killings. And then finally, Yusra Mardini from Syria, now living in Germany. She's a swimmer. She fled Damascus, Syria with her sister Sarah 10 months ago. 10 months ago, you guys. They left in August traveling to Lebanon and Turkey before taking a dangerous boat journey to Lesbos, where so many refugees end up, uh, that, that tiny Greek island. She lives in Berlin now and spoke uh, on the IOC's announcement a little about what she thinks the opening ceremony will feel like. I think I will think about my family and my coach, my friends and everyone who's helped me and how proud I am that I did it. And I will try to go back to Syria. The six men on the team are Misinga from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Judo, Rami Anis from Syria, swimming, Yik Purbiel from South Sudan. Uh, he's a runner, the 800. James Nyang, uh, pardon me on this one, Ching Jik from South Sudan. He's a 400 meter. Uh, Jonas Kinde from Ethiopia, the marathon. Why are there so many great uh, 
Ethiopians and North Africa really murder the marathon. And Paolo, perhaps that was the worst turn of phrase I could have used there. They really kill in the, <laughs> that was a, <clears throat> they do quite well. And Paolo uh, Amotun Lokoro from South Sudan, he's also in the 1500 meters. Um, can't get enough of pre-Olympics high appears Team USA channeling some Muhammad Ali's greatest lines. Uh, and the keywords are Olympic athletes. So uh, that'll be very exciting to have an all-refugee team in the Olympics. And we're hoping the Olympics come off um, uh, without any hitch. Uh, there's been so much shitstorm over it. People are making fun of it. Um, you know, the president of Brazil's in hot water. The country's, uh, you know, rife with all the same problems. It's always had corruption and poverty. Um but we want to see them succeed and we want to see it be a beautiful event. My understanding is there's still loads of tickets left if you want to go down there. Um, mind you, there were for the last ones. Where were those bloody ones in Russia that were in Crimea in the middle of bloody nowhere? What was it called? Sochi. Yeah, in Sochi. Sochi. When Bob Costas' red eye came at us and scared us all to death. Uh, you could have gone to that one too. Um, are you going, Greg? No, I have to go to Montreal. Uh, no, it's in August. Uh, here we are. Uh, one last story, and then we'll, and this one will lift your hearts to the sky. Uh, this is uh, Jennifer gave me this one as well. It's from San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, San Francisco Moles plans for taxing the rich to house the poor. A payroll levy on the city's largest levy. Tax com- tech companies, Google, Twitter, Uber, and Airbnb, aims to tax inequality, but some have savaged the proposal. Under the plan, a tax on companies such as Airbnb would fund affordable housing and services for the homeless. San Francisco's long, complex, and fraught relationship with the tech industry has come to a head with a proposal to levy a tech tax. Under the plan, large tech employers in the city, potentially including Uber, Twitter, Uber, Airbnb, and Salesforce, would be required to pay 1.5 payroll tax. The estimated $120 million in annual revenue would be used to fund affordable housing and services for the city's large homeless population. Local politicians are seeking to put the bill to a citywide vote in November that would mark the culmination of two years of boom that have rendered San Francisco one of the most unequal places in the U.S., in a city where 57.4% of the homes are worth more than a million, but hundreds of people, hundreds, that's low ball, thousands of people sleep on the street. The tech boom in our city threatens our abil- city's ability to thrive and prosper, said er- Supervisor Eric Marr. In San Francisco, we don't have a city council. And we don't have aldermen. We have supervisors. Don't ask why. Five years after the boom, it's time for San Francisco to ask the tech companies to pay their fair share. Every week brings new outrages, whether it's the tenant in North Beach who had emerged this week, received a notice informing him that his rent was going from 1800 a month to 8000 Or the kindergarten teacher whose building was bought by two tech workers and it was revealed this month is facing eviction for nuisance violations that include using appliances. The city is deeply divided politically between tech evangelists who believe passionately in an industry that has spurred the local economy and made the rich even richer and others who believe the sectors reach an encroachment into the city is responsible for erasing the city's rich culture and sparking a a housing crisis. They spend 25,000 per employee per year on perks like free beer and pool tables and massages, said Feng Kung, an organizer with Jobs and Justice. Um, that's great, but can they spend a thousand to help the rest of San Francisco survive? Queer activist group Gay Shame regularly plasters telephone poles around town with posters featuring slogans such as "Programmers off the block" or drawings of severed heads of tech CEOs on spikes. A Latino neighborhood being transformed by an influx of tech gentrifiers—that's the mission, including Zuckerberg. Re- graffiti recently appeared on the sidewalks declaring queers hate techies. So that's where it's getting to. It's getting real ugly in San Francisco, and here's the deal. 
Um, there's a million white tech guys because the tech boom is almost 95% white guys, you guys. Let's get real clear on that. It's white guys who are making the money. It's white guys who are treating themselves to buying these beautiful houses all over San Francisco. It's white guys who want the homeless off the street. It's white guys who want to take over the parks. It's white guys who want artisanal shit everywhere where there used to be corner stores. It's white guys who don't want to be bothered by the realities of living in a real city. And a real city means homeless people. A real city means crazy people. A real city means not everyone's as rich as you and doesn't like the same things as you. I urge Google and Airbnb and Uber and uh, Twitter and Facebook to take this on. Zuckerberg has proved that he wanted to be uh, um, a delightful, giving, generous philanthropist with his recent vows. Certainly they could pop forward a 1.5% payroll tax. Isn't that much? Um, Make San Francisco beautiful. How do you do that? By including pirates and prostitutes in the fucking plan. There was a time when San Francisco would not have had the power to tax major tech companies, which had traditionally based their campuses in Silicon Valley. The seminal moment came in 2011 when Twitter threatened to decamp somewhere cheaper and more business friendly. The city responded by offering a payroll tax break to Twitter that's in the central, in the rundown central market neighborhood. It wasn't that rundown. There's lots of nice restaurants and houses there. My friend Pat had to move his studio from there. Oh, never mind. Then by phasing out the payroll tax and replacing it with a gross receipts tax, a popular change for tax companies that often have large workforces before they have revenue. The companies that took advantage of that were just getting started. The same stretch of the city where Twitter has Uber, Spotify, Dolby, Square, Zendex, Yammer, whose collective valuations approach $100 billion. Silicon Valley natives like Google, LinkedIn, and Apple are rapidly expanding into the city too. The tax would turn back the clock, bringing the 1.5% potato, but only for tech companies. Um, I think it's beautiful. I'm all for it. Uh, I'm not going to read you all the terror stories and the horror stories, but let that be uh, something that you really need to um, think about other people sometimes when you're a rich tech person. And I urge you, if you're a rich tech person living in Silicon Valley or San Francisco, um, to put down... Um, your phone for two seconds and think about the fact that the reason why San Francisco is the beautiful oasis that you moved into is because other people were there before you and some of them would like to stay while you're there too uh, and that you playing one-on-one with your douchebag friends is not that important and I don't know why I singled that out but it's just something that really sticks in my ass you crowding the sidewalks of the mission with valet parking and baby carriages didn't make it a better neighborhood you guys what made it a good neighborhood was being able to get a dollar fifty burrito at La Cumbre uh, there I've said enough for today in any case uh, I wish you nothing uh, but peace and love uh, may every bell you ring be a cool papa bell may every page you turn be a satchel page and if you have to buy bonds make sure they're Anita bonds I wish you nothing but love good night everyone and we'll see you next week